Welcome to Back from the Brink. This is the after show for our morning radio show on KCA Radio. 1050 AM and 106.5 and 102.3 FM in the Inland Empire. That would be on the brink. Morning show with Todd and Aaron Brinker. And Aaron will be joining me shortly here in the after show as she wraps things up in the studio. Happy, happy Tuesday the 15th to you. 10 days away. Christmas is 10 days away. You can still order things from your online service providers, uh, your online stores, your online shopping to arrive before Christmas. But you might want to consider paying to have it wrapped and just sending it directly to those that you want to give it to instead of having it come to your house and then shipping it back out. Because we're getting down to the nitty gritty, folks. It's 10 days away next Friday. Next Friday is it. Christmas is here. So, uh, yes, beware. Be very aware. The fat man will fly shortly. So, um, you know, how, how ready are we for Christmas this year? You know, it's one of those weird years where, you know, with COVID, nothing, people aren't going out and doing much. So if people are not out and doing much, then what is, uh, what is the scoop? What's the, uh, what's the dealio? You know, if, if you can't go shopping, then a lot of online shopping is happening and you can online shop, you know, to Walmart, just like you can, and everybody immediately says, oh, Amazon. But, well, Amazon does a great job. Yeah, they're good online shopping. But, uh, you know, you want some uh, handmade gifts and things, go to Etsy. Check out Etsy. There's all kinds of crafty stuff going on there. Um, you can buy things on eBay, sometimes new, sometimes not new. Um, but you can get collectibles there. And then, chew, <laughs> excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Got a quick sneeze in there. Um you know, and then there's the Walmarts and the Targets of the world, and they sell everything they sell in their stores online, and they'll drop it at your doorstep, and uh, and they do it pretty well. They've gotten better at that. It's not like in the days where you would order it online, and maybe it'd show up sometime in next month. <sighs> oh my goodness, excuse me. Allergies are kicking in. Gotta love it. I don't know why, but uh, yeah. Oof. Man, get the, the sneezies all over, so... Yeah, we do our best to endeavor to persevere through the allergy season. So, yes, I don't have any any viruses that I'm aware of, but boy, allergies. Here's another. <laughs> Here's another one. Oh my goodness, this may go on for a while. Usually, when they happen, I will. I you know I don't think I'm done yet. I don't think I'm done yet. So, um, oh well, I just have to live with the uh, the uh, the news. And, and such and such and gesundheit so um anyhow stuff going on in the world of oh shoot <laughs> as i said i'm not done yet um you know in the uh, show we were talking about you know, when somebody works in or, or when, when they you know work at a mink farm or a chinchilla farm what happens to the animal's carcasses after they take the skin off and sell that to make a coat and so I did a little quick investigating, and apparently they don't waste anything, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know, it's there's there's if you're raising that animal, there's value in that animal, and so they're going to figure out what to do with it. One of the things they do with minks is they uh, render uh, mink oil. They use that oil; it's used to uh, uh, waterproof or, uh, other kinds of leathers, 
And so mink oil is a, is a, a good waterproofing thing. They also sometimes use it in feeding into biofuels. And so um, uh, you could be burning mink oil in a biofuel. Um, and then the rest of the carcass, along with their manure and soil bedding and straw shavings and stuff, are all composted to make a, an organic fertilizers. Um, and so the animals don't get wasted. Um, they're also looking at transforming mink wastes into methane for bioenergy production. So um, there's other ways of using the, the, the leftover bits and pieces of the animal when they're harvested, which, you know, I mean, uh, I have, you know... <laughs> While I have issues with with commercial, you know, raising of animals like this, um, you know, as long as they're not wasting the 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 animal, they're using the whole animal and it's getting used in some way. Um, I have less of an issue with it there because you know I I do eat meat and so I can't be too critical of the fact that that the meat that I eat is raised in commercial farms for animals that are raised to be you know meat products for human human consumption. So uh, as much as looking at that business i have difficulty with the the way animals are treated very often in those situations and i prefer to eat you know um uh meat proteins that have been raised in uh in uh ethical fashions and and in you know animals treated well um the bottom line is is i'm still eating and using animal products and so i can't uh in good conscience be too critical of that because I haven't done anything to modify my life to not participate in it. So, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, but I still, I, I don't disagree that it should be monitored and make sure that the animals are treated in ethical ways and that they're, you know, not, uh, raised in pens where they're not allowed to move or anything like that. Um, they should be allowed to be animals and be in a natural environment and move around and, and behave like they would naturally until they are harvested, you know, and, uh, anyhow, um, uh, that's my two cents. I'm not, uh, not an extrovert by any stretch. So, uh, yesterday, big news about the first people getting their vaccinations with the, um, uh, first COVID virus that had been approved. Moderna's COVID virus is, is expected to finish its last hurdle by the end of the week and be available next Monday. So next Monday we will see people getting uh, vaccinated using the Moderna um, uh, vaccine. Now, the Moderna vaccine has some advantages in that it can be stored at room temperature. I don't know if you saw any of the news stories, but the um, but the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept very very cold sub freezing temperatures and so they're packed on dry ice and they they have to uh you know they have limited travel time if they're not packed and kept cold whereas the moderna one can be kept at uh, room temperature and travel around so that will make it probably a lot more practical for use in the long run and both of them are expected have been testing out at like 94 95 percent um effectiveness so that's really really good um and you know we'll hope that over time we won't see any untoward um side effects that we didn't notice when we rushed it through quick approval in a you know in less than a year and we don't find out that hey guess what a year or two after taking the uh the vaccine we find out you know everybody's hair turns blue or something like that 
Um, and obviously that's ridiculous, but um, we don't want that to happen. Here's Aaron. Hello. 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 I was just talking about so, the uh, Moderna vaccine that is uh, due to be approved by the end of the week and that, that people could be getting Moderna vaccinations um, by next Monday. And, uh, you know, the advantage of that one is, is that you don't have to keep the vaccine cold. It can be stored at room temperature. So it will probably be more practical in the long run in terms of uh, being able to distribute it. So now, do both of them have to be taken in two doses? Uh, it's my understanding that they're both a two dose thing where they're taken uh, like two weeks apart. And so both of them are a two shot deal. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. So I wonder when it comes to the general public, because you, you know, this, and we've heard some talk about this, that there are side effects of both of them, that you're right. going to feel crummy after you take them. And so you take a shot and you feel lousy and, you know, maybe you have to miss work or whatever. And then, you know, how, how many people are going to say, well, I'm done. I'm not getting another one. If I get it, fine. Like, get, yeah. get I'm, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm done. You know? Yeah. And then you're not well, really protected. Then you're not really protected and you kind of mm-hmm. just wasted your time. Yeah. In fact, worst of all, you may uh, find that you're somewhat protected against uh, weaker strains of the virus, but stronger strains of the virus will main, will be able to still attack you. And then you're basically a breeding ground for stronger strains of the virus, which then will be harder and harder to fight, which is what happens when people don't finish their antibiotics. Yes. So, yeah. Is a possibility... You know, anytime anything relies on uh, the government doing a good job of educating the public, we're basically, you know, in for bad times. <laughs> so I have been watching a documentary. We talked about Freddie Mercury, and I've been watching this mm-hmm. three-hour long, and I think it was probably originally aired in three segments, documentary. So I'm watching bits and pieces of it when I have a break. Um uh, on AIDS and you know globally what was going on with AIDS and, and how it mm-hmm. started because they know um, uh, and this was from I probably I'm going to guess the early 2000s is when this was made it may have been um, a little a little earlier um, but it's it's um, you know trying to get people to understand and even people in government to understand because you know people are just people um, you know and fear reigned everywhere and people didn't listen and they made up their mind that you know that it that the the the, the, uh pandemic was caused by bad behavior or the pandemic was caused by whatever um and it was really it was really interesting how fear ruled and in this pandemic um you know i see a lot of parallels um you know so i mean obviously they didn't call this is not called a gay cancer um in in the u.s you know the way that the way that aids was Although in, in other countries around the world, it was, it was a population, you know, it started in Africa. They know how it started. And, um, you know, in, in Uganda and in uh, Zaire, which is now the, the uh, Democratic, oh no, it's the it's Democratic Republic of the Congo. No, it's the, free, the other, there's two Congos. It's in the actual free Congo, not the, not the, ter- it's this, the, uh, the Bongo Congo. Country. <clears throat> yeah, so with Zaire, and I've forgotten, so the DRC is a more totalitarian country. Um, anyway, um, 
uh, it was it was in the heterosexual population, um, and uh, so anyway, it it but in this country they just thought it was with gay people, and mm-hmm. they had these you know I didn't realize that in New York I knew I'd heard of shooting galleries where uh, you know you'd go to Hell's Kitchen and you get your heroin. And I just thought that meant a lot of people were shooting up. Well, they would reuse needles over and over and over again. And that's, that's you know, you'd go in there because the shooting galleries had the needles. Yep. Well, I mean, that's, talk about a, the way to, to spread the disease. Holy smokes. Yeah. So, and then there was a hesitancy at the time to provide needles because that was seen to be um, uh, aiding in people's continued abuse of drugs. And so even though it wasn't the drug itself, it was drug paraphernalia. And so... There was yep. a hesitancy to say, well, let's just give everybody clean needles because that'll solve the problem. Because people th- said that right off the bat. And then a lot of anti-drug crusaders went, well, wait a minute. We're not going to give that. You know, that's like giving everybody who wants to smoke pot a bong. That's not good. We can't do that. Yeah. Um, and it make you know, I mean, I understand that. It makes sense. But it was, they those people weren't seeing that the, the uh, times had changed, that the situation had changed. And... At this point, it was about keeping people from dying, not about keeping them from using right. a drug. You know, you, you can't help them beat their drug if they're dying of AIDS. So, yeah, I... Um, or their drug addiction, I guess, is the yes, it's, proper it way was, to frame it. Yes, it was... It was... Uh, people fundamentally misunderstood. And, of course, um, you know, how would you understand? I remember being, like, 11 years old uh, and seeing this... this on the cover of Time magazine were in a very ominous design where the words AIDS as people were, you know, this, this, this thing then had a name. Maybe it was not 1981, it was, but it was around that time. And, um, you know, and it was finally starting to get some national press. But the, but the government didn't really, you know, they didn't really uh, focus on it. You know what I'm saying? They were, they were in, in, in cost-cutting mode and they, they cut the, the budgets of all these departments including the CDC and um, you know by like 25% and so they felt the, the the Reagan administration felt strongly that money wasn't going to fix this problem um, well yeah. you, you know and, and people obviously were mad about that you know the one thing it did do is uh, that was the, the one positive thing if you're going to look out of you know silver lining is that um, it 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 brought to the forefront the humanity of, um, of especially gay men, um, you know, as, as ACT UP became um, active and were, uh, well, was founded and became active and started fighting for a cure and, and trying to get the attention of people. And they, that's when you saw the start of all the pride parades. And that's when you saw, mm-hmm. you know, the gay rights movement really, really take off and people, you know, people may have known that there may have been people in their circle who died of AIDS and all of a mm-hmm. sudden this was a human problem it was just a human yeah. face uh, for the disease but also a human face on like I like oh I know gay people I didn't realize I do um, yeah. and I like that guy he's my friend or he's my yeah. brother or he's my cousin and so yeah. didn't realize he was gay because he wasn't didn't feel safe telling people about it and so you know you would find out and go, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. You know? Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or there were those who said, oh, I didn't know that. I now hate you. That kind of thing, too. I mean, you know, there was, 
people going both well. ways who didn't understand or didn't, you know, couldn't accept the fact that somebody was. I remember working at, I was in college working at a stereo store uh, and, um, uh, you know, selling stereos and going to school. Uh, but that was how I paid my rent and stuff. And uh, one of my coworkers, somebody I didn't know real well, but there was only like, you know, a little more than maybe a dozen, dozen and a half salespeople in the store. So there was maybe 16 or 18 of us. And so I knew him. Um, one day at work, got a phone call and and uh, and got visibly very upset. And I didn't know, but it turns out he was gay. And a friend of his had found out that he had AIDS and there was no cure for it at the time. And he went and jumped off a bridge. And, and that was a phone call from one of his friends telling him that his friend had just oh gotten tested God. positive and then, and then went and killed himself. And, and he was just, you know, I mean, visibly shaken. And, and, you know, I didn't know that the guy was gay in the first place, so, you know, it, but then to find out that one of your friends figured that he had a death sentence and decided he was going to take it in his own hands and say, I'm not going to let this thing kill me. I'm going to just do it myself was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. I'll never forget the look on his face when he, when he got that phone call. Cause I just happened to be there when the call came in, you know, standing there next to him chatting, you know, as you, as you do when you're at work, you know, you just, talk to your co-workers at times and uh yeah it's just horrific just horrific but that's how you know that that's something that people in the gay community live with during that period of time was you know if you got that that you know that test from your doctor it it was considered a death sentence that was it you know and so it was time to you know put your affairs in order and say goodbye to your friends and it was it was scary yeah really scary so this particular documentary, and I'm happy to, to share it with you, Todd. It's three hours, but they interview yeah. people. So I, you, well, I've been watching it in little bits, but um, they uh, they interview doctors from around the world who are working on this issue um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what this virus was and why it wasn't um, why a vaccine was so elusive. So I didn't realize that that the that the HIV virus would would hide itself in sugar. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, the body wouldn't recognize it as an invader because it saw the sugar and went, okay, what's sugar? We know what that is. And so the, the immune system couldn't identify that it had, you know, a lethal um, uh, invader in its, you know, in, in the system. So it, right. was, it's to- it was totally the Trojan horse um, uh, kind of virus. Scary as hell. Yeah. Yeah, no, the the trying to figure it out and try to, you know, I mean, much like we've been doing with COVID, you know, when it first launched, we didn't know. And so it was like trying to figure out how this thing moves around and what mechanisms it works within the body. I mean, I was just reading an article yesterday about about COVID um, that, uh, you know, they're starting to understand some of the things that make one person more susceptible to having a severe case than another. And some of those things are, you know, they're, they're finding some genetic uh, ties that there are certain genetic makeups and markers that there that are that make you more susceptible to a severe case of COVID, and and it's very interesting to see that certain genes cause your body to trigger certain ways. And if you have that gene, you're more likely to have a bad case of COVID. And if you don't have that gene, then you're more than likely to have a very mild case. And uh, and so it's interesting to read about that stuff, you know. And as it becomes more and more, uh, you know, as they they learn more and more, they'll be able to tell you. And you'll you know, if you happen to have like a uh, a 23andMe or something, they'll be able to then go back and tell you, yeah, you have these genes, so you know you need to be you're in a higher risk category than somebody who maybe doesn't. 
which is good. They're always hesitant to put that kind of information out, though, because they don't want to imply that, well, you know, if you don't have those genes, then you're safe to do whatever you want because you're not. You just have a, li- a lower risk of, of a bad case, you know. And yep. so they're concerned about it. As for the AIDS thing, um, you know, I mean, I, I may watch that at some point. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a wee bit older than you, and I remember very vividly living through that time, you know, and, uh, um, and, and later worked for a gay-owned company where, you know, 90% of maybe the, the, the people who worked there were gay. Not all, but, but most people in the company were gay. Um, you know, I think I was one of maybe, there was less than a dozen people who worked at that company that weren't gay. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I remember talking with my friends there about, you know, and this is fairly further along in the, in the, in the, in the process. Um, and there were already some, you know, drug cocktails that helped fight the, the virus, um, that they were still concerned about things like, you know, if you're going to go get tested, you have to, you know, go pay cash at a, at a clinic because you don't want your insurer to find out you're gay because your insurance rates will go way, way up. And things like that that they had they you know had to deal with because of the you know pervasive view that somehow they were you know much higher risk group because of this this virus and as you pointed out I mean you know there are, you know lots of people who who contracted the disease through blood transfusion transfusions early on because we didn't know what caused it so you know if you you had to have a, a, a emergency surgery or even an electric surgery the blood that you got during that surgery may or may not have been infected because we couldn't track it. We didn't know what was what was the cause initially. Um, and, and, and blood banks were reticent to track it. They were afraid of the political back, backlash, and they were afraid mm-hmm. of, you know, people being fearful of the blood supply. And so yeah. they, it it became political pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's you know, a lot goes into human nature than more than just the facts. You know, we'd like to say, oh, yeah, we just, you know, we, we get the facts and then we make a decision. But that's not the way human beings work. We don't just get the facts and make a decision. There's a lot of emotions and, and, and um, you know, pre-existing beliefs that play into um, uh, everybody's decision-making process. Even those who don't want to admit that they're there, they're there. You know, you bring your own bias, basically. So, yeah. Dealing it, with us a, humans is a tricky, twisted thing. You know, you know, you think about um, pandemics, and you know, somehow it feels safer to talk about uh, a a pandemic that is is much farther in our rear view than than COVID, because COVID's happening right now. Um, but a lot of the same parallels exist in the fear, in the misinformation, in the conspiracy theories, in you know the way people react to it. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the, there's still a lot of parallels. Now, again, this one, it wasn't um, uh, predominantly in one demographic or another. This COVID's for everybody, but, um, or is found with everybody, not for everybody. But um, it, it is, it is interesting how much, um, how many parallels there are. You know, yeah. people feel because of an, and you know, it's pretty terrifying. You've got an invisible invader and, you know, all of the, and by the time, the most insidious thing about AIDS is by the time they realized what they had, a quarter million people were infected. Um, mm-hmm. And it just went up from there. Now, we're just hitting 300,000 now, and we've been working on treatment uh, for COVID. 
we've been working on treatment since we became aware that this was going to be a thing. And so, you know, we being the, the medical community. And so it's really, it's, it's really interesting to, to, to compare the two. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, any, any type of pandemic is going to have a lot of similarities, right? Um, and how it's going to go about uh, as it progresses through the society and we sort of get our, our brains around what it is and how to deal with it. You know, it's funny, um, I was uh, reading an article a while back and people kept, there was a commentary basically that, you know, how come is, or why is it that people keep uh, bringing up comments by Bill Gates on, on this? Because, you know, he's a computer guy. He's not a doctor. Why on earth would we care what Bill Gates has to say about this? But it's interesting because when he retired from, um, you know, I mean, everybody knows about his foundation that he created after he retired from um, actively working with Microsoft. But um, he did a TED Talk probably seven or eight years ago in which he essentially said that, you know, our biggest threat is not a war. He says, we've kind of worked our way through that and yeah there'll be squabbles but chances of us having another big world war are actually relatively low nobody you know really wants that we we see the economic benefits of other ways of sniping at each other but that the biggest threat we had was a virus and that we essentially don't have any good means of dealing with viruses and he said sometime in the next 10 years we're going to have a big virus that you know uh, could be killing 10 million people and right. uh you know and although um you know we're at what 16 million or something now worldwide or 1.6 million i'm sorry yeah 16 million no 16 million infected in the u.s i think the 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 worldwide deaths is like 1.6 million we were creeping up on 300,000 in this year in this country right yeah so so um you know he he uh He's a smart guy. He looks at, uh, you know, and as a as a as a guy who's running a business, you look at risk, you assess risk, and say, well, you know, what are the things that we see on the horizon that we should be aware, aware of and ready for, you know, and and he he was saying it, and he's been banging that drum for a while, so you know, and he's not the only one, but uh, but uh, you know, that's the reason people are are looking at his opinion because he was right, you know, um, and. Because he's also got a uh, big old buttload of money that he can throw at a problem uh, if he can if he thinks that somebody's got the the right approach, the smart way to handle something. So um, that's another reason people listen to him. You know, it's funny when you got a lot of money, people listen to you. Yeah, well, and he yeah he has the kind of money that can make catalytic change. I mean, mm -hmm. it just that. So it's it's I I get frustrated with him because to me he seems a little shadowy he's not really accountable to anyone or responsible to anyone um and i and i worry that he i have a perception that he sees us you know sees the little people as again in a paternalistic way we kind of talked about this yesterday um and that and that bothers me having said that i'm grateful that he spends his money trying to vaccinate the world i mean i i i think you know eradicating polio and and other horrible diseases is a, is a good thing. It's a good use of his money. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just I mean, he's untrustworthy, Todd. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I I don't. I'm not quite sure. You know, what about his behavior or something comes off as shadowy to you? But um, 
you know, his, uh, if, you know, if you look at his foundation, I mean, I think that as a, uh, you know, he's not the first one. I mean, we have a history in the United States of really wealthy people. Once they've made their money, stepping back and saying, well, what can I do to help society? What can I do to, you know, how can I be a good person and try to get into heaven? <laughs> you know, you know, a Andrew Carnegie, you know, built libraries and tried to fight, um, you know, the, the, um, sense that the United States was illiterate. You know, he wanted to fight illiteracy and educate people. Um, um, you know, there are lots of, of really wealthy people who have gone forward and done things. And he, you know, Gates is, you know, almost historical in the, in, in his, his effort to move forward on a lot of that kind of, of those on that front, you know, and a lot of what he's been doing is trying to figure out what are some of the biggest things that we're facing. And so he's, he's spent a lot of money on, on um you know trying to battle diseases that plague humanity as well as um you know other simple things like um he spent a lot of money and and uh helping people try to design um something as simple as a um uh power clean water source slash uh toilet that you can set up somewhere in Africa without any power have a freestanding thing that will you know work off you know like a you know you'll be able to generate energy that'll run a pump so you can pump water up to get fresh water and you generate that energy off of waste because you have clean bathrooms that people can come and use instead of using the local rivers and streams and polluting the water sources and so um you know it sounds like a silly thing but uh th that's one no, of the things huge. that he's he's been looking at because it's huge because there's lots of places in the world where you know having clean drinking water is not a given you don't drink i mean all you have to do is go you know a couple hours south and as soon as you hit the mexican border you don't drink water that comes out of the tap not down there you know it's bottled water or or boiled water you don't you don't use water out of the tap um you know and when you bathe in it you keep it away from your face you know you you uh some people even wash their hair with the bottled water because they don't want to get water in their eyes and, and stuff because there's infections in that water it's just not clean and, you know, so, it's something here in the United States we take for granted. I have, you know what, my, my and it's not unique to um, Bill Gates, but I see that, you know, these these uh, world leaders in the in the groups, you know, the Council on, or the World Economic Forum and the Council of Foreign Relations and some of these large um, uh, groups who are, or, who are doing what feels to me like you know, uh, planning what the economy should look like and all of that, that I am, I am, have a knee jerk lack of trust for people who are doing that kind of work. And so, you know, I, I can point to individual things and say, yeah, that's great. I mean, his foundation has done tremendous work, um, in education, Bill Gates's foundation in education and mm -hmm. in clean drinking water and all of that. But don't forget um, Melinda, it's the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. Well, okay. <laughs> But yeah, I'm okay. teasing you. Go ahead, finish. Go finish your thought. So no, but I just I'm 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 just careful in my you know instead of yeah I'm just careful because I don't I don't like to feel like my life is being planned by somebody else. That just bothers me. Mm -hmm. And and I know that there are people who do that. You know that's part of the you know these groups get together and they they talk about the world and the economy and they release white papers and they're out there for you to see. You can read them. Um, you know, there's this, the World Economic Forum has the great reset right now and, you know, resetting the world economy. And they're, they're, they have altruistic, uh, altruistic, um, 
motivations behind it, but it, it, you know, when, when centrally planned anything has happened, um, you know, in, in nations, it's not been good for the little people and we are the little people. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm just kind of knee jerk, not trust. I, I, I don't trust it. I have to be, you have to tell me why I should trust it. You have to prove it to me that I, that I should yeah. trust what you're doing. Yeah, I understand that. I don't get the sense that they're trying to like centrally plan anything for for us. I think that you know, from what I've seen, in the, just you know, just a different perspective, that they're you know that, that they're looking at things that that are, are causing issues in the world and saying, well, you know, can applying money to something create a solution? If it can, we can maybe go there. If we don't think it's applying money, then what do we need? You know, how is that? What's the best way to approach that? Because you know, they're also as a group tend to be you know we don't just throw money at the problem because that doesn't solve the problem that just throws money away and so um you know they're making investments in technologies and in procedures sure. and processes that help to solve problems and that's just their sort of their take on it you know and different i mean you you're much more deeply in the world of uh nonprofit than i am um you know each nonprofit has its own way of of going about doing what it is that it's created to do, right? It's its own process. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't get any sense that they're, um, you know, that there's sort of like a nefarious or, or behind closed doors means of doing things with everything that I've learned about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But, um, but admittedly, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, investigating to see what they're doing and what they're up to. I mean, I've gotten it through a couple of different documentaries and through interviews from both of them. And, uh, you know, she honestly comes across as much, uh, much, um, warmer and more, um, people centered than he does. And I think that's just his delivery. That's just him. You know, not that he's not, he just doesn't come across that way just because he's kind of a, um, well, like a lot of programmer guys, he comes across like somebody who's sort of on the spectrum and doesn't have a lot of empathy for the world. <laughs> he puts yes. a lot of thought into things, but he's not always real empathetic and caring in the way he expresses himself. And I think that's just part of, you know, who he is and his background. Yes. Yes. And I you didn't know. mean to disparage him. I'm, I was really talking in generalities. more. Yeah. 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 And I got that. And I don't disagree with you. I think that we should always be cautious when somebody says, you know, hi, I'm here to help. <laughs> you know, and you're like, um, okay. I don't, I don't know who you are. Um, I don't know what you're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. How about you go over there and hand out the bread while we figure out if we trust you? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that, you know, I, I think I saw a, um, I can't remember what show it was. Maybe it was an episode of Shameless or somebody, somebody shows up at a food bank to help. And that's exactly what they do. They look at him kind of side eye and go, you go over there and, and hand out silverware. And, and we'll talk about you and decide whether or not we're going to actually trust you to do anything more than hand out silverware. Um, <laughs> you know, eh, okay. Uh, it's not that we don't want help. You. We want help, but we're just not sure about you yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we see if you show up tomorrow after, you know, after your one do good day and we'll see if you, you know, if you're really somebody we actually want to talk to or not. So, you know, and that's human nature and probably by good cause, right? Yes. So. Yes. So, it is so it looks like 1983 was the first AIDS uh, cover page for um, Time magazine. 
Okay. All right. I, I just, it was the first one and I was, I couldn't remember. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was, I thought I was yeah. thinking I was 11, but I was 13. So um, yeah. July 4th AIDS hysteria was the title. Ah, yeah. So anyway, I, you, you can find a Wikipedia page of like topics for, um, for, uh, list of time magazine covers and it doesn't show pictures of all of them, but it shows, um, you know, the date and and uh, and what what who was on there, what it was. Jimmy Carter was on a lot back then in the eighties. Oh, that's interesting. He he was on on the cover like six different times. Um, so, but then in eighty one, January of eighty one, Ronald Reagan, Man of the Year, because he got elected in eighty and took office in January of eighty one. So. Margaret Thatcher. It's really interesting to look back at like covers of, of magazines and, uh, you know, for a time period, you can kind of see what was going on in the world at that time when it was sort of like a, a news magazine like Time was. Um, and so, Billy Martin. Billy Martin was a uh, baseball manager and uh, he basically managed his team in a method that was referred to as Billy Ball. And, uh, he was, he was a, he, the New York Yankees, right? Among others. Yeah. He was hired and fired by the Yankees, I think three or four times. So yeah, he, uh, he had a, a love hate relationship with, um, uh, their then owner. And, uh, so yeah, Billy Martin was a character, a sports character. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, as a manager, Minnesota twins, Detroit tigers, uh, Texas Rangers, then the Yankees, then the Athletics, and then back to the Yankees again. Uh, but for the Yankees, like his his third stint with the Yankees, or after he went back to the Yankees, he was manager in 83. Then he wasn't in 84. Then they brought him back in 85. Then he wasn't in 86 or 87. Then they brought him back in 88. So again, very love-hate relationship. It was like, yeah. So it's one of those guys, you know, It's I think it's one of those relationships where you go like, you're really good at what you do, but I just can't stand you. So it's like, you're fired because I'm fed up with you. And then, <laughs> well, but I really want to win again. All right, come on back. Come on back. Nope, nope, nope. Can't stand you. You got to go again. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. These days, you know, if you did that to a guy, he'd probably turn around and sue you, right? That's It's it's funny how, how uh, the uh, mentality the changed. changed. Yeah, I watched a documentary on... Um, it was about the uh, the use of nudity in Hollywood and 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 the sensibilities bringing it up to like the Me Too movement and how you know that there were some women actors who felt like at that that right now they were more empowered to to decide how and when their their bodies would or wouldn't be shown in movies. But there were others that also lamented and said, well, now it's almost to the point where you you know you you can't show yourself in a movie even if the you know if you're doing a scene with it calls for it, it makes sense and you wanted to that there's all kinds of of uh political feedback going on within the hollywood crowd that it's 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 you know that that people's choice has actually been taken away because of the the hypersensitivity about things these days and so it was very interesting to see the the uh you know, and it's not the first time that there's been an ebb and flow since Hollywood, you know, started making movies back in the early teens and twenties, the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties. Um, 
you know, there were times when we were much more um, loose about our bodies and then other times when we were much less loose about our bodies, you know. And it even goes back further than that because, you know, if you look at the Sistine Chapel, a lot of the, uh, the roof of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo was nudes of humanity and of God. And, and then after Michelangelo died, more has changed and they went and had hired other painters to come in and paint over that and put clothes draped across a lot of the characters that are on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So, because at that point in time, you know, 100 years later or 50 years later, it was like, oh, we can't have all these naked people in a church. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. So, you know, it's something that, that humans have, have uh, struggled with for eternity, right? How much is too much? And is it done tastefully or is it pornography? And, and what's the difference? And where do we draw the line? And, you know. Is it, is it X? Is it NC-17? Is it R? What makes sense? It's not just what you show, but in the context that you show it. Um, it's, you know, difficult, difficult decisions. And, so do you uh, remember how, how gory things were? You know, thinking about sex, but also about violence. You know, movies yeah, in the late the, 80s and 90s were so violent. Yeah, it's funny because they actually talked about that a lot. And in fact, they said that that you could get uh, you could show nudity if people were like getting hacked up. And in fact, a lot of those those uh, slasher films of the the uh, late 70s, 80s and into the 90s, um, you know, the girl who survived at the end was the one who who didn't behave badly. Right. But if the girl the, the girl who was there with her boyfriend and had taken her top off, she's the one who gets her arm slashed off and her and her head chopped off and. And uh, and so there was like these weird little morality plays that they would stick in the plot line in order to to uh, to make them more titillating. Because a lot of these, let's face it, were really B movies, you know, and they weren't like high art. Um, oh, no, they and, were horrible, but we liked yeah. them anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the Halloweens and the Freddy Kruegers and the the Texas Chainsaw Massacres of the world. You know, and those were the good ones. I mean, there, there were ones that were much, much, uh, you know, names that you can, you know, you don't even remember. But, you know, it came from the swamp type movies that, that uh, <laughs> had a bunch of actors that you either didn't know then or or, you know, were just starting out. And later on, you they they got a name for themselves as an actor, um, you know, and and a lot of different people had done it. You know, I mean, they, they showed a clip of a movie that I don't think I'd ever seen. But there was some cheap B movie horror movie that had. um um, um, oh shoot, um, De Niro in, Robert De Niro in, you know, when he was probably, you know, 18 or something and you look at it and you go, huh? Yep. That's Bobby. Yeah. Every, every actor starts somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and there were several, you know, they, they talked to, uh, they, they interviewed women, you know, uh, and I, I think that the thing was, you know, it's fairly new because they were covering the Me Too movement. So it's, it, it was made in the last year or two. Um, and, uh, you know, they were saying, yeah, you know, my opinion was I, I didn't care if I had to, to do a scene that was topless. I was acting in front of a camera and getting paid for it. And, uh, you know, and then I went on from there, you know, and, uh, but it, it depends on the time and the era that you did that in, right? Because there were some women, if you did it at a certain time, it meant you were marked and that you were never going to make it in, in air quotes, yes. straight movies, right? Because yes. you did you did the, 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 the titillating movie and you didn't do the, you know, the straight movie. And so we're not going to let you do that. Whereas others were like, meh, 
You know, I mean, uh, Marilyn Monroe actually turned that corner because from the fifties, if you have, if you did anything that was, that showed any, any skin, you were marked, you didn't get it. But, but Marilyn Monroe, you know, as she was just starting to make it, they, they playboy published a bunch of photos that she had posed nude before she was, you know, anybody. And, uh, and she very famously, they said, you know, well, were you wearing anything in those pictures or, or no, they, they said, did you have anything on in any of these pictures? And she goes, well, the radio. <laughs> <You know? laughs> says, yeah, I had the radio on, which was, you know, and, and then she went about her business and she was, you know, probably the biggest star of her day. Um, you know, so it didn't hurt her at all. Of course, once that happened, then other women, there was a bunch of women that were sort of like, you know, the poor man's Marilyn, right? And, and they then, uh, and I say poor man's, but they were just, you know, they weren't Marilyn, but there were other blonde bombshell type actresses out there. Mimi Van Dorn and, um, um, uh, blanking on the name of the other one that was really big, but, uh, you know, they then would do a topless scene somewhere, you know, just because it was like, oh, well, you know, I can do that too and still be an actress, you know? And a lot of the women that they reviewed and men too, uh, said, you know, well, I mean, if it makes sense in the, in the context of the story, then I don't see any issue with it, you know, or others were saying it's not for me, you know? And so in some cases that meant you didn't get the role. In other cases it meant, okay, then we can bring in a body double or, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, I think the bottom line is, is what they said is today, it's like, as long as you're not changing the story as we go along, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want to be shooting a movie and then we're, you know, practically done with the movie and you come to me and say, we need to do a nude scene. Right. Just, you know, yeah, I don't want to be. It's got to move the plot forward. Exactly. Don't, don't, don't throw it out there and, you know, and, 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 uh, and surprise me with it at some point and say, well, you know, we, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You know, if it's in the, if it's in the script right from the get go, then I can make that decision myself, but don't try to leverage, you know, everybody getting a movie in the can because I won't do this scene that you just decided on the fly that you wanted to put in there. Um, it was interesting too because they talked you know they, i mean uh, it's usually been a bigger deal for women to do it but there have been men who have done some full frontal nudity that have been a shock you know i mean richard Gere did uh, american gigolo and very um notably uh and they got an r rating which was unusual but the the ratings board said that you know in the context of the movie the man was a gigolo of course you're going to see him naked um it made sense and so he, he didn't get an X rating for that movie, but, uh, you know, he did full frontal nudity in that movie. Um, you know, um, so we are completely out of is what time. it is. So anyway, yeah, if you want to watch it, it's, uh, um, the history of nudity in Hollywood and, uh, or what was the name of the, uh, the AIDS documentary that you've been watching? Um, AIDS documentary. I googled it and okay. I found it on YouTube, yeah. and it's like three and a half hours. So if you see one that's three yeah. and a half hours on, there I'll probably find aren't too many. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the problem. <laughs> there probably aren't too many of them that are out there that are three and a half hours long on that particular topic. Although I, I there, there's there's a few, um, you know, because it, it's something that's been covered pretty well, um, you know, and, and I'm sure there are, are uh, you know, better and worse takes on the subject matter. Um, you could also go watch the movie Philadelphia, which is excellent. So um, anyway, thanks for joining us today. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm Aaron Brinker. And uh, have a great day, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>